0: I'd like to turn your attention this morning to the book of Job, chapter 11. We'd like to look at a verse, Job 11, that was a saying is attributed to one of his miserable comforters during his time of affliction, uh, Zophar the Naamathite, is the one who states this. The reason that we make that statement uh, is that if, you'll, if you turn to the end of Job chapter 42, um, God instructs Job that he needs to pray for and intercede for his miserable friends that he has because some of the things that they said to him and laid to his charge during his affliction were just flat out wrong. Even though they may have meant well, They tried to address the situation as best they knew. Some of the things they said were incorrect. And we've all, we've all been in that place. Uh, we've all tried to speak to somebody during a time of difficulty. Uh, and because of our frailties as human beings, we've come up short with what we wanted to say to them, uh, not realizing that sometimes Saying nothing at all is is the best thing. Um, but I do find in the midst of chapter 11 of Job that there is a, a question that is asked to him. Uh, I believe is a true question. I, I believe that what Zothar, uh, Zothar had to say to him uh, was relative and important even in our day. And the question is in verse 7. Of Job 11. Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is as high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell. What canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than to see. This, I do believe, is a fascinating question. Canst thou by searching find out God? Can thou by searching find out the Almighty unto perfection? So I believe there are two answers uh, to each of these questions. The first one is, can thou by searching find out God? The answer is possibly. The second one is, can thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? And the answer is no. There's no way that we will truly, this side of heaven, completely understand and comprehend God. He has reminded us in the book of Isaiah that my ways are not your ways. As high as the heaven is above the earth, so is my ways above your ways. That's why we sing the hymn, God moves in mysterious ways, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. We all have to look back in our own life, and if we recognize that God was doing anything at all, it's a mystery to us what He was doing. It is a mystery how He can work and bring to pass an understanding or bring to pass a will that is uh, completely pleasing to Him, it's oftentimes past our understanding. That's why Paul said in, in Philippians that the peace of God that passes all understanding shall keep your hearts. When the world sees you and you ought to be falling apart, when the world sees you in difficulty and in distress, and they see you in peace, weathering the storm. They want to know, how are you doing this? And you have to answer, I'm not. It is not the sheer willpower of a man. It is the Spirit of God inhabiting your spirit. And Jesus standing up in the boat saying unto the winds and to the waves, peace be still. And there is a peace and great calm that nobody can understand and that you couldn't describe it if you were asked to. You see, the great question and the great quest in our life is how to move from knowing the doctrine of God to discovering the person there's a lot of us that know a doctrine of God. We have an understanding that God exists. Oftentimes, though, we don't have an understanding of who God is. I know there's a, a few husbands in here that have traveled for business once in a while. And so we ask the wives though you're married and your husband is traveling, on business, no doubt you may feel alone when he is not there. And if you have the care of small children while he is gone, you not only feel alone, but you feel overwhelmed. You look on the mantle and there's his picture so you know he exists. You look on your finger and there's a wedding ring so you, you, you know you have a connection. But when he gets home, what happens? Is there an interaction? Is there a satisfaction? If he's just a warm body in the other room, well, what do you have now? Is he just somebody there to occupy a space? Make you feel comfortable in case somebody wants to break in? Is is He just there for someone to lighten your load while you go do something else? Well, in some cases we can understand why that is necessary, but between a husband and a wife, there ought to be a relationship and an interaction not found between you and any other person on the planet. God is the same way. If we come to church and we just simply discover A doctrine that God exists. Well, what do you have now? It's more, much more beneficial that we move from knowing a doctrine about God to knowing the person A study of creation can tell us that there's a God. So, for example, in Psalm 19, Psalm 19 and verse 1, this should be a very familiar verse to most of us who have sat under the sound of gospel preaching for a long time. The Bible reminds us in Psalm 19 and verse 1 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. The creation that exists can declare there is a God. But, now hold on. Because the pagans also have their little stories that attempt to explain the origin of the universe, how man got here, where man might be going. But to every reasonable, logical person, You can look out at the creation that is here, the the trees that grow out of the ground, the birds that, that fly in the air, and realize this didn't come from nothing. It didn't just appear by itself. Something had to act upon this. You don't just walk into your garage and things appear. Somebody had to put them there. The laundry doesn't do itself, does it? The dishes doesn't, don't do themselves, do they? No, nope. somebody has to do them. Somebody has to put them away. We all understand that everything that you see was created by someone at some point. There is an initial first cause that exists in this world. And the initial first cause for the beginning of this universe is that God spoke and it came to pass. Creation can tell us that there is a God. Paul writes concerning the the evidence of God in creation in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, notice verse 18. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The Bible Bible informs us that though the wicked and unbelievers around us may not recognize Jesus as the Messiah, They may not recognize Him as the Lord God of this universe. They they have to recognize that things don't just manifest of their own. If I was to come here next week, we were to come here next week, and there'd be a great big tree growing out of the middle of this building, you would not say, wow, the power of evolution. You would ask yourself, who put that there? And what's interesting about the way that oftentimes God speaks to not only his people, but to the world in general, he oftentimes does speak through calamities and catastrophes, and oftentimes people do not hear or see. I would not say that every tragedy that occurs, I would not say that every storm in life that comes about, is a judgment of God upon people for their sin. Sometimes we have storms and tragedies because we live in a fallen world. But the idea that there's global warming that's going to destroy the planet is because you're driving a gas-powered vehicle is foolishness. Some people never... Contemplate and think that the reason that we have some of the troubles we have in life is because of the sin that we commit. Not just God's people, but the world as a whole. You find God's people are guilty of, you know, sins themselves. You know, just think about how little God's people sometimes care for church. Think, on the other hand, about Hollywood itself, how much sin it puts out. Across the airwaves. They're they're constantly uh, complaining that men are harassing women in the workplace. And yet, at the earliest of ages, children are being groomed either through TV or through school to be sexually active. They're groomed from the earliest of ages to be sexually active and to... Not control themselves. Act upon their impulses. Act upon what they want to do. And then they get out into the workplace as grown adults. And what do they do? Act upon their impulses. Do not control themselves. And now you're in trouble for living the way that you have been taught for so many years. The issue of abstinence often comes up. And people say, well, you just can't can't demand that people abstain. People are going to do what they want to do. If we would take the same passion that we have used over the last two years to shame people during the coronavirus for not social distancing, not wearing a mask and things like that, and apply that to abstinence, you can force people to abstain. People just choose not to. They choose not to use the same logic in one area that they use in another. And they don't realize that sometimes the trouble that we have through hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes are not the result of global warming, but human sin. I'm I'm interested to find out how the latest... uh, latest bills or the latest uh, government actions, banning tornadoes is going to work out. I'm, I'm interested to know how that's going to happen. Y'all read that, right? Did y'all read that in the news? They, they're passing legislation now banning tornadoes. Grab your popcorn and sit back. This is going to be interesting. The invisible things of God are clearly seen from the creation of the world, even his eternal power. Godhead. So the creation the creation can speak to the power of God for He created all things and without Him there was nothing made that was made. The creation can tell us that there is order with God because what He created works in an orderly and precise and predictable manner. In Job 38, this is addressed. Turn with me there uh, just briefly. God asks Job a number of questions. uh, And we're going to get to this in in just a minute. But there came a time when God uh, responded to some accusations that Job had made. And God began just asking Job a series of questions. One of the things that the Lord asks him here is in uh, Job 38 and verse 31. Job 38 and verse 31, God asks him, Canst thou bind the sweet influence of Pleiades, or loose the bands of Orion? Canst thou bring forth Mazaroth in his season, or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? Knowest thou the ordinances of heaven? You take and contemplate this universe uh, that the agnostic, the atheist, the evolutionist believe is is just here by accident. And yet you look at the universe that we live in, it is so precise and so particular and, and it operates so regularly that people can make calendars months and years in advance to know where the earth will be, know where the sun will be, know where the stars will be. The Farmer's Almanac is based months and years in advance based on the preciseness of an accidental earth. The wristwatch that you have on on your arm is guided by time. That time is measured by the position of the stars and the planets in our solar system. I don't put a whole lot of stock into the shapes of the stars that are out there, that they mean this and that they mean that. It is interesting, though, that when the night sky opens up and you see the stars, you see what is called Orion, the shape of the stars out there, in the same spot, day in and day out. You see the big differ, You see the little, little differ in the same spot, day in and day out. You see their pattern and their form in the same place, the same spot, day in and day out. It's almost like it was intended to be there. And God asked Job this simple question, Could you bind up the sweet influence of the Pleiades? Could you you reach out there and loose the bands of Orion? Orion's this constellation shape that right in the middle of it, there are three stars right across it called Orion's belt. Human beings that think they're so great, they're so full of pride, they're so full of themselves, God asks this simple question. If you're so great and so powerful and so mighty, just reach up there and take his belt off. Can you do that? but there's one seated in the heavens that so if he decided to unloose all the foundations and the faculties of the universe, it would spin out of control and dissolve into nothing. We know we can observe from the creation of this universe that with God there's power, he created all things, and that there's order because what he created exists in an orderly and precise manner. And we may even say that with God there is perfection. Because what He created was good, yea, very good. That it has operated and continued to be this way since He laid the first stone in place. But creation, as the question was asked, canst thou by Studying or canst thou by reading or canst thou by learning or just by looking out, find out God. We have found out that there are certain attributes to God just based on the fact the world exists. However, creation may answer that there is a God, but it cannot answer what is God like. Which is why in Acts 17, when Paul was at Morris Hill, and he passed by and he saw uh, the idols and he saw uh, all the temples that were built, he passed by in Acts 17 and verse 23, and he saw this inscription to the unknown God. They were very religious in their efforts at Morris Hill. But in one instance, their religion was in vain. People don't need to confuse. People often confuse activity with spirituality. They are not the same thing. It's very possible, so for example, it's very possible to clean your house in the wrong manner. So for example, if, if if you needed to clean your house, if you needed to restore your house, uh, the first thing that you need to do is vacuum the floor. Then scrape the paint off the walls. There's a little chuckle in that because you realize that's that's ridiculous. I mean, you could vacuum the floors and vacuum the dirt up, but if you're fixing to do something that's going to create the biggest mess man has ever seen, vacuuming the floors is not the right thing to do. It's the last thing to do. But it's very possible to be active and actively achieve nothing. People confuse in our day and age activity with spirituality. While we do agree that those who are spiritual are often active, those who are active are not always spiritual. And Paul comes by this, this religious marker and he says here, to the unknown God, he says to those at Mars Hill, Him declare I unto you, God that made the worlds and all things therein, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands as though He needed anything. Creation can answer that there is a God, but they cannot tell us what that God is like of the great attributes and the great characteristics of mercy and grace and love. See, it's one thing to understand the doctrine of God. It's one thing to understand that God is and that God exists. The pagans thought that there was some God and they had a whole list of them. For whatever problem you had, whatever situation you had, they had a whole list of gods for everything that they possibly could come up with. The good thing about Christianity is is we understand there's one God for whatever ails you. He's the one stop for everything. But to truly understand the person of God, you kind of have to get to the point that Paul spoke of when he addressed uh, the young minister Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3 in verse 16 that without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. There should be no controversy among us That the mystery of God is a great thing. There's not a person among us who can stand up and say, I have completely figured God out. No, you haven't. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And the very first thing that we find out is that God was manifest in the flesh. To move from knowing a doctrine about God to knowing the person of God is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Word of God as told to us in John chapter 1 and verse 1 that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Drop down to verse 14 there in John chapter 1, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So even if we fell among the Romans or the Greeks, or we fell amongst the Asians, or we fell amongst, take your pick of any pagan uh, religion, and we believed in their God, then so what? What if Vulcan is your God? What does that do for you? What if Pan is your God? What does that do for you? What if Zeus is your God or Thor is your God? What does that do for you? Their gods were indifferent and impersonal. They did not dwell among the people. They did not inhabit the earth among the people. They did not care about the people. But in the Christian Bible, it declares unto us that the God that created the universe and all things therein one day descended to this low ground of sin and sorrow took not upon himself the nature of angels, but rather the seed of Abraham, was conceived in the lowest parts of the earth, in the belly of a virgin's womb, and came forth a baby lying in a manger, born King of kings and Lord of lords. When the three wise men came to Jerusalem, they said, we have found his star. We have seen his star in the sky. We have seen his star and we have come to worship his star. Should have been some grunts about that. They weren't here to worship his things. They said, we've seen his star and have come to worship him who is born king of the Jews. In the Old Testament, it declared unto them the doctrine of God, that God would come to this earth. But in the New Testament, they did not find the doctrine of God become the person of God. They found that God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirits, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Great quest that lies before each and every one of us every day of our life is discovering God. Go back to the book of Exodus. We'd like to ask some questions. In Exodus chapter 5 there is a question that is asked. The question is asked by a man named Pharaoh. I assure you that the question that he is being that he is asking he is not asking for information. He is not asking out of ignorance that he might learn. He's asking out of pride because He doesn't care. Exodus chapter 5 as Moses and Aaron would come to Pharaoh and say the Lord has said let my people go. Pharaoh says in Exodus chapter 5 and verse 2 who is the Lord that I should obey His voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord neither will I let Israel go. Friends, we can boil every problem in this world down to that statement. Who is the Lord? I know not the Lord. I don't care. I don't know the Lord, Pharaoh says, and I will not let Israel go. Friends, this nation right now is in a chokehold of fear. And you've been that way for a year and a half. There are things to be afraid of. Did you hear me? There are things to be afraid of. But there is a God who is greater than the things that you're afraid of. This nation right now has a chokehold on you because they are afraid of what exists and because they do not know God. It is time for God's people to put down their fear of things and pick up their faith in God. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? I don't know Him. People are constantly telling us those of you who aren't wearing masks are killing us all. Well, you know, it's been two years. How long is this going to take? Y'all all ought to be dead by now, right? All the homeless ought to be dead. The homeless ought to lie dead and frozen in our streets. Because they're not social distancing, they're not wearing a mask, and they're not vaccinated. Does this make any sense to anybody? Something may not add up. Look, the same people standing in the White House who were warning us of global warming and rising tides are buying mansions on the seacoast. That don't add up. You would think if they really were afraid of rising tides, they wouldn't be buying uh, uh, mansions on the seaside. They'd be buying houses on the hilltops. Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord? I should obey His voice. That's a great question. Who is the Lord? Moses had asked this same question just one chapter prior to this. Two chapters. Exodus chapter 3. Moses is out here in the wilderness tending his father-in-law's sheep. And he sees a mysterious sight. A bush that is burning but is not consumed. He says, I will turn Myself aside to see this sight. And out of the midst of this burning bush comes a voice that cries out to Him, Moses, remove Thy shoes from off Thy feet for the ground that Thou standest on is holy ground. You are in the presence of Almighty God is where you are, Moses. God tells him, I want you to go down to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let My people go and lead the nation of Israel out of bondage into the promised land. And Moses asked this question in uh, Exodus 3, verse 13. Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is His name? What shall I say unto them? Oh, really? He sent you? You know, when children have to walk home from school or they have to be alone, parents will often tell them, here's a password, here's a passcode. If I send somebody to pick you up, they will have this password. So that if anybody stops them on the street and says, your mother sent me to pick you up, the child needs to know what's the password. Where do you think they got that from? Here's the nation of Israel, God's people, down here in Egyptian bondage. And Moses says, the Father has sent me to pick you up. Really? What's His name? How do we know? And God simply responds by saying, you tell them, I am that I am. Has sent you. What an outstanding verse. I am that I am. It's a, it's a present condition that never changes. Not that he was and now he is, or now that he is and he will be, I am that I am. Oh, it's, it's, we're confounded when we think of an almighty being without beginning and without bounds, unoriginated, unending, the same yesterday, today, And forever. And this is why so many people have a problem understanding the doctrine of the Trinity. People don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity because I, as a human being, cannot be three different people at the same time. And so they assume that God is bound like we are. God is unbounded by time, space, or anything that hinders you and me. Keep, keep this thought in mind. In, uh, in John chapter 1, there, there's just an interesting study. This, I'm going to kind of sidetrack here a little bit on this. When God said, I am that I am, you obviously could turn to the New Testament and you could find many of the I am statements of Jesus. Not that I am the bread, I am the vine, I am the water. Not those statements. The ones where uh, they came to arrest Him by night, and Jesus said unto them, uh, the one whom you seek, I am, is what the Scripture says. And actually you'll notice though, in the King James Bible, he, He says, the one that thou seekest, I am He. He is in italics in that phrase. It's added by the translators to clarify The meaning, in other words, you're looking for somebody, that's who I am. But if you read it without the he, what Jesus is saying is, the one whom you seekest, I am. And when he said, I am, they immediately knew he was referencing the I am that I am. In John chapter 1, though, there's an interesting uh, discourse that's laid out here. Many people cannot handle the Trinity of God because He uses the term Son of God a lot. And so they assume that as a son, I am inferior to my Father. So He as a son is inferior to His Father. They can't be the same person. Here's a question for you. Just because He used the phrase Son of God, does that mean that's the only thing that He is? John chapter 1. And verse 29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John calls him the Lamb of God. So because he's called the Lamb of God, am I picturing a four-legged creature here that walks? Well, he's called the Lamb of God. That's what he is. He's an animal, right? No. That was his purpose in being here. He would be the Lamb of God sacrificed for the sins of the elect people. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Son of God. In verse uh, 34, notice this. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. So he's called the Lamb of God. He's called the Son of God. Again, in verse 39 of John chapter 1, behold the Lamb of God. Notice for me in verse uh, 41. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. Verse 45, Philip findeth Nathaniel, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That is incorrect. He was not the physical son of Joseph. He might have been the adopted son of Joseph. But he wasn't the physical son of Joseph. And yet he's called himself the son of man many times. So, my question is, is if Jesus himself refers to himself as the son of man, I'm the son of a man. I'm certainly not God. Neither am I divine in any way. So really, if Jesus calls Himself the Son of Man, does that mean that He's not divine in any way? That's not what that means. People cannot understand how one person can be God, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, and the Son of Man, and the Christ of God all at the same time because they don't understand the purpose of God and they don't understand the person of God. Moses said, who shall I say hath sent me unto you? He says, you tell them I am. Because they're going to need to know I am. Is there God? Because there's coming a time at the end of a 40 year wandering in the wilderness when Moses, the great man of God, is going to die. And God is going to raise up a man named Joshua. And He's going to say to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, Behold, Moses, my servant, is dead. You go forth. Many representatives on this earth have come and gone. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Adam, Joshua, Caleb, David, Solomon. They're all dead and buried. One thing has remained constant and the same. I am that I am is still here. Moses said, who are you? And he said, I am that I am. When Pharaoh asked that question earlier, It's important to point out that in the book of Job, I'd like you to notice in in Job 21, in verse 13. Job 21 in verse 13 says, they spend their days in wealth and in a moment, Go down to the grave. The wicked, and he's specifically speaking about the wicked in this life. The wicked have a problem. They're always measuring who they are by what they have. Jesus reminded us that a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things that he possesses. But we look out here at the wicked around us who live in luxury, who live really without want. Most of them don't have to work or worry about anything. They have fame and they have prestige and their names are on the lips and tongues of many people in this world. Their posters fill up locker rooms. Their music's played across your radio. And they are seen as some kind of God. Look at what the next verse says. Therefore, they say unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto Him? One of the reasons that the wicked don't care any more about the God that we believe in than a hog does Sunday is they have everything they want. They just don't realize what they're missing. So when you come to someone like Saul of Tarsus that we spoke on just a few weeks ago, he was an individual who thought he had everything he needed. But in Acts chapter 9, something happens in his life. The God of glory stops him in his tracks. Blinds him in the way. And Paul cries out in Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus cries out in Acts chapter 9, Lord, who art thou? He says, "I am Jesus, and you persecute us. Who are you? I'm the very thing that you thought you were going to get rid of. I'm the very thing that you wanted to eradicate in society. And yet, without the presence of Christ." and without the person of Christ, and without the understanding of who He is, where is our nation headed? Hitler said that he wanted to raise a generation of children void of a conscience. Reckless and cruel. And he almost succeeded, didn't he? He raised a generation that was trained in cruelty. Where do you think America will end up? If we ever get the idea that God is dead. We're seeing right now in many parts of America, San Francisco particularly, where businesses are having to close their stores because they cannot stop the rioters and the looting. Young men, void of a conscience, hateful and cruel, are running into these stores and ransacking them and running out with product, and the police are standing there watching them do it. Because some in higher powers think that it is cruel to punish lawbreakers. Where do you think we're headed? You look at the life of Saul who had no place for Jesus and you look at what he did and you can see where we're headed. He asked the question, who are thou? And once God changes your heart, once God puts His Spirit in you, once Christ takes up His residence in you, you then spend the rest of your days viewing every situation and every difficulty and every problem in your life from the perspective of what does Jesus think. I'm faced with a problem. What would Jesus do? I'm faced with a situation. What would Jesus say? I'm faced with a difficulty. How would Christ react? And those of you who have ever tried to act godly in this present evil world, you realize it's not an easy thing, is it? Paul asked the question, Who art thou Lord? He said, I am Jesus. In the book of Job, I'd like for you to notice now, we'd like to kind of close out our thoughts this morning. Um, in Job chapter 23, we find a perspective. Uh, we find one perspective of Job that will be later changed in uh, chapter 42. Job was a good guy. Don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. Job was a good guy. Job was a child of God. When the devil came to the Lord, and the Lord said unto him, Hey, where you been, buddy? God knew where he'd been. But he said, where have you been? He said, from going to and fro in all the earth, and up and down, and probably causing havoc everywhere he went, because that's all he ever does. That's all the devil ever does. That's all he's ever good for. The only thing the devil is good for is to kill, to steal, and to destroy He never makes anything. He never creates anything. He never brings true joy. He never brings true peace. It's always a path of destruction. And the Lord said to him, Have you considered My servant Job? The most upright man of all his generation. And the devil says, Yeah, I have considered him, but I tell you what, there's a reason that he serves you. You've put this great hedge about him and you've protected him but take everything from Him and He will curse you to your face. And God took everything. And yet Job, through all of that there in the first two chapters, it said Job did not curse God nor did he charge God foolishly. I don't know that I have the ability to do that. You know, when you want to be on time for work and... There's traffic. You know, you left on plenty of time and there's traffic and you still showed up late. And the question is, why me, God? Right? None of y'all, none of y'all ever had that question, have you? Am I the only one that asked that? In Job, though, 23, Job did come, come, kind of come to a point where things were getting real heavy for him. And he says in, in Job 23, Verse 1, then Job answered and said, Even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find Him, that I might come even to His seat. Now, that that's a good desire. Oh, that I could find God and I would come to His throne. Because Paul said in Hebrews that that throne, that throne is a, a throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Sounds like Job's kind of headed in the right direction, right? That I could find God. I could find His throne. But he's not looking for grace and mercy to help. Read the next verse. Verse 4. I would order my cause before Him and fill my mouth with arguments. He says if I could find God and find out where He was at, I'd come before Him and I'd tell Him why He's wrong. I'd tell Him why this is unfair. I'd lay out my case before Him and complain that he hasn't fixed this. I submit to you that at this point in Job's life, Job has an understanding of the doctrine of God. Job knows God exists. I'd like you to turn now to chapter 42. At the end of... God's questioning with Job. God asked this question of job in chapter 42 and verse three. He, he says, "Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I understood that I, excuse me, therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Job is confessing here. that he said things he didn't understand. I I told you a few weeks ago that I like to watch debates of people. I just like, there are certain debates that are raging in this nation. Debates on equality. uh, Debates on equity of outcome. uh, Debates on gender roles and gender rights and these things. And I just like to, I like to watch conversations of people discussing things in a reasonable manner. It's come to my attention though that a lot of times people on what I would say an opposing view very seldom are arguing or reasoning out of logic. It's usually feelings. And I have to look at these people and I have to say, you know what? I think they have uttered things that they don't understand. Because most of the people that are on these little discussion panels are a good example of what rambling is. They are a good example of somebody who stands up and they speak up and they fill up their time with nothing important. They have rambled and they have babbled and they have double talked and they have said nothing important. Job said, I did that. I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me which I knew not. God asked him and says, Here I beseech, or God says to him, Here I beseech thee and I will speak and I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Throughout this entire interchange, Job has finally come to this point. He has said, I have heard of thee with the hearing of the ear. I understood the doctrine of God. But somewhere in the midst of the last two or three chapters, he's discovered something. He's discovered the person of God. The discipleship. It's not just learning facts about God. It's learning about God. It's experiencing the God of glory. So finally says, you know, I just need to be quiet. I need to be quiet when I'm in the presence of the Almighty. Because knowing the person of God is far more fascinating than this the doctrine of God itself. Because the person of God tells us that He came down to this earth and for a bunch of wretched, undeserving sinners laid down His life upon a cross and with his blood purchased our redemption that he that did nothing wrong suffered the greatest punishment of anybody ever and the reason that arguments rage and fights rage in my house between me and the children or me and my spouse is that i need these people to understand i am right it's not all the time and I can't always see that they can't always see that men spend their whole life running a race trying to achieve more than the person next to them when I was in high school I played sports and that was that was the goal of the sport to win more than than the person next to you. The, the goal of, of the football game, you know, was to score more points than the team on the other side of the field, right? The, the goal of the baseball team. Score more runs than the folks in the other dugout. So the goal of marriage is not the same. And the goal of discipleship Goal of discipleship is, is actually just the opposite, wherein John the Baptist will say, "I must decrease, and He must increase." So it, it may be worth uh, it may be worth studying those last twenty chapters of Job. Find out what about the person of God did Job discover? Because discovering God is the great quest and the great question.